Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books a Million, or wherever fine books are sold. Hello and welcome to Food and Beverage Magazine Live. We are brought to you by life. Live juicy inside scoops from tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farmers, foodies, and friends of the Food and Beverage Magazine world. We are here live with James Beard award-winning Jennifer English and myself, Michael Pollard. Hey, babe. Hello. Whoa. Hey, don't you me to me. Just this, you're me tooing me at the start of the show. (laughs) Awkward. Awkward. No, man. I am so excited. The James Beard Foundation announced their nominations for the 20. Oh, I got rid of her by accident. Oops. Sorry. I I dumped you by accident. I meant to hit the wrong button. Technical difficulties. Okay. Go ahead. Anyway, yesterday was an amazing day because we all thought that the James Beard Award nominations that had been postponed might have been postponed indefinitely. And the foundation did an extraordinary job yesterday of announcing the nominations for the 2020 James Beard Foundation Awards. Chefs, restaurants, media, broadcast media. You know, they're the Oscars of the food world. And yesterday, from an announcement that was made live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In- Oops. Online. And uh, we're excited because we're going to talk a little bit about who got nominated and what it really means about our world of food and culture that in this COVID moment, on the day that would have been the actual James Beard Awards, they stepped up and they did the nominations announcement. And they postponed the actual awards event until later in the year. They're thinking maybe September would be a safe bet, but we'll see. Uh, and it's just exciting to know. And it was because the foundation really believes that everybody that did such an outstanding job that won an award this year deserves to have their moment. And I believe that too. And I think it's going to be a really good thing when they happen. So normally I save this only when I talk about you, but henceforth, since you're talking about the James Beard Awards, let's show what it looks like. Could you give us a little background for people that don't know who James Beard is? You know, James Beard was the father of American gastronomy. He was widely acclaimed. He was nationally syndicated to literally hundreds, if not thousands of newspapers all over the country. In that period, 
after World War II, when we all began to pay a little bit more attention to food as something more than sustenance. And in that time, when all the GIs came back with these loves of things that they had discovered, and then we had rediscovered that they were already here. You know, we had a really pan-cultural influence taking place with all the immigration that took place in the hundred years before World War II. And of course, for so many new immigrants, the doorway to the U.S. economy was always through opening a restaurant. It's how we got to know our new neighbors and they got to know us. And there were always great local mom and pop places, even outside of big cities. And we may not have learned the authentic cuisines of those places. We may have Americanized it a little bit. And of course, when I say that, I'm thinking of things like, you know, Chinese food and and the the in, incredible notion of chop suey, uh, which clearly is not an authentic Chinese food. But, it, but again, it was one of those things that allowed us to cross the threshold into the cuisine that allowed us to discover what would ultimately be this fantastic love affair with all these global food and cuisine traditions. And not just right. Asian cuisine, not just Chinese food. You're no, talking it, it Eastern was, European? It was Eastern European. It was German food, Italian food. It was, it was every kind of cuisine you can imagine that somebody would have brought from their world to their new life, wherever they landed, anywhere in the U.S. And one of the things that also happened is when you go to places like France, where we think cuisine reigns supreme, and we learned what dining and fine dining became. So in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, we knew that fine dining meant that white tablecloth and crystal kind of experience with classic dishes that were part of that historical French culinary lexicon, that Escoffier-derived and inspired classic sauces. Everyone that went to cooking school went through that kind of program and learned the mother sauces and the classic dishes. And, and the kitchen brigade. Dining. The kitchen brigade, brigade as well? Yeah. All of it was derived from Escoffier. And so we all kind of thought that, well, that's what a real restaurant is. And it was certainly on display in hotels all over the country and all over the world. So back in Portland, Oregon, at the turn of the last century, James Beard was born in Portland, Oregon, where his mother ran a boarding house and where he grew up with a tradition of having food that was created for the guests. And he was originally an opera singer, but he was always an artist and a foodie. And we have him to thank for his appetites because they really fueled his passionate curiosity for all things delicious. Why was James Beard important? Because he was really the pivotal figure who helped us embrace and discover that classic regional American cuisines were the thing that we had to be most proud of. We didn't need to compare them to French cuisine or the Swiss hotel school traditions and say, well, you know, classic American Southern food or soul food or food from New England or classic Midwestern fare could never hold up to really traditional Escoffier. And where we live today, and we're going to talk a little bit about that with our guest today, where we live today, Fine dining has been completely redefined. And when James Beard introduced us to the fact that great food meant not only the kind of fancy food that we would have had in restaurants, but it also meant that we were defining and redefining 
what was delicious and irresistible. We were celebrating service and hospitality. And literally over the last 30 years, because this is the 30th anniversary of the James Beard Awards, over the last 30 years, we have truly seen the landscape of our food culture change dramatically. But before that, the 30 years before the Beard Awards, before James Beard passed away and his his friends all got together and created the James Beard Foundation, he had an incredibly pivotal role. He wrote books that were bestsellers. He had nationally syndicated columns in different magazines. He had one of the first food shows anywhere in the country long before the French chef. So so who were his friends? That, any names we would all know of? Any well, names he, had, he had some amazing friends. I never had the privilege of getting to know him personally, but I got to, but I do know friends of but him. You weren't the same age. He was not your peer, was he? No, he was born 60 years before I was. That's, that's neither here nor there. I got to meet, I got to meet uh, the major domo of the James Beard house who had taken care of Mr. Beard. Uh, his friends include uh, people like Julia Child and Peter Kump of Peter Kump Cooking School and and people who were part of that uh, generation of, of fine food, Craig Claiborne, et cetera. But, but it's, it's less about the idea that that was a different time and the idea that that represents our continuity. There is that line that James Beard inspired and the crossovers that we have from the- What year, what year did he pass? What years were he, was he active? What years was he, his writing? Well, I- you know, right after World War II, I want to tell you, I think one of his first books was published in the early 1940s. And All it right. was a fantastic little hors d'oeuvre book. I have a copy of it. Did he go through into the 70s or 80s? Into the no. 80s. Into so the he 80s. would do like Jean, Jean Philippe and all those guys. Well, then you got to go back to who were the people and, that were. And my favorite, The Magnificent. Finish that thought. What? I, I don't know where you're going. I'm just wondering if he wrote about like Jeremiah Tower and, and those people. Um, what I'll tell you, the, the line of continuity between a Scofier travels from a Scofier through people like James Beard, through people like Natalie Dupree, through people like Julia Child, Peter Kump, um, and our favorite network stars today you know, Ina Garten and Sarah Moulton, the line continues to today's generation. Um, the people who are winning and, and being nominated for James Beard Awards this week, and we're going to talk on Friday to someone from the James Beard Foundation to talk about this year's awards. But we've got to remember that every year these have taken place, they really represent a snapshot of where we are as a cuisine culture in the world. And we go from having places like Charlie Trotter's and some of the very fine dining, fine dining restaurants to literally one of the restaurants that's nominated this year is our friend Chris Bianco and Pizzeria Bianca. There really has been a seismic shift in how we define and feel confident in defining world-class cuisine as it is being practiced and offered around the country. We go didn't you recently? Country. Yeah, didn't we, you recently dine at one of the one of the winners? Well, and here in Vegas. Was, yes, and and the reason I wanted to bring all of this up and and why this is so important is because I had the great opportunity when we were in Las Vegas 
earlier before the pandemic hit to do an event at the fantastic University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, Harris Hospitality School with the Women's Hospitality Initiative launch. And our good friend Elizabeth Blau and her team created this extraordinary event to level the playing field for women in the industry, for sure. But one of the things that happened that week was I got the chance to actually go and dine at a place called Esther's Kitchen. In Who'd Los you go Angeles. with, Jennifer? Who'd you go with? I actually was very lucky. I got to go with uh, Chef Michelle Ortiz, who's our guest today. And I wanted to lay all this foundation because the Beard Awards continue to be the most pivotal and important benchmark and award in the culinary industry. They're still widely respected. And from the East Coast to the West, the nominees this year represent the very best of the best. National standard bearers of excellence who are not only achieving great things today, but also promise to achieve great things into the future. And it's with that that I apply that that sort of framework to the conversation today. And we are psyched to have my friend, Chef Michelle Ortiz, who's a project manager for uh, Wind Design Group on with us. Uh, she's the one who said, Jennifer, because we were at this event together, and she said, Jennifer, you've got to come to this place with me because we had all of Las Vegas at our feet. We could have gone anywhere. And guess where we went? Well, we Esther's went to kitchen. Esther's Kitchen. We went to Esther's Kitchen. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Good, Jennifer. How are you, Michael? I Michelle, to how are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's so good Michael. to have you here. You hear how she said, Michael, Jen? She said it like I was being reprimanded. I'm telling you. All the, that I'm whole, sorry. It's that whole crew. It's that whole crew of successful, powerful, the most powerful women in Vegas. That's what they say to me, Michael. But they always, they'll always they always defend me. I'm like their little, like, little, like, elementary school friend. They're like the cool girls from junior high. They'll be like, oh, there's Michael. And then if I get bullied, they'll, like, go and attack the guys that bully me. This is this is what happened. Welcome to Las Vegas. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great definition. Uh, well, the reason, Jennifer, I wanted to go there, I had recently gone to Esther's Kitchen. And if you've been there, Michael, or whomever is listening and had, has had the opportunity, they're known for fresh pasta. It's a small restaurant in what they consider the arts district here in Las Vegas. So again, we're going off the strip. And I think that's one of the things people don't realize about Las Vegas. And yes, while we're known for all these celebrity chefs, we're known for the great casinos and the restaurants within, what's even better are the restaurants outside of the strip. And it's an opportunity to even see Vegas. We're not just the strip. We are so much more. And there's so many micro uh, neighborhoods that you can go into that have nothing to do with being right there in the middle of it all. And Esther's Kitchen is one of them. And I just felt that it was a place that you needed to have tried. Jennifer, you know, the fresh pastas, the cocktail program, which I think is fabulous. Um, and just the location. You just don't think that you would get that. Um, that that's not what this city is about, when in fact it actually is. You and I have very similar palettes, Michelle, and everything we've ever done together, we've cooked together, we've gone out um, and gone food exploring, and, and we always have really synchronous palettes. You have a really refined palette, but your sensibility and crystal ball are unmatched. You've been a consultant in the hospitality industry for much of your career. 
But one of the things I wanted to tell you that really struck me about going to Esther's, which yesterday was nominated uh, for the James Beard Awards uh, for outstanding uh, uh, restaurant in the Southwest. One of the things that it strikes me is they, they describe their food as Italian soul food. And they talk about the, the sort of vibe that they create as being um, like an Italian, like a trattoria, like a Roman trattoria where they make the pastas. But their bread program and their cocktail program, they're all really extraordinary. No detail is too small. But I have to say, when you brought me there, it looked like almost every other kind of groovy place where you'd wait in line happily for a few minutes or more to get a seat. But then when we were brought food, something extraordinary happened. We were brought food that is so delicious that it, it was more than spoon worthy. It was, a, it was an edible mic drop. Like, I, I can't remember the last time that I had food that was so remarkably delicious, surprising, remarkable, that, that it was just, it just silenced and delighted you all at the same time. I can't remember the last time I had something that delicious. Well, here's what's funny. That began, if you remember, which I'm sure you do, with bread and all these accoutrements and they had these breads and cheeses and, you know, your cured meat. And it just started off as what you would think is something basic, something that, you know, pretty much you can get bread and cheese and charcuterie anywhere. But even bread and charcuterie can be excellent. It wasn't. And it was it was just elevated to a whole different level. And I want to say, like, we polished off all this bread <laughs> and it was just two of us. Michelle, it was extraterrestrial good. Like there was no frame of reference for good on planet Earth for how remarkably delicious what they delivered to our table was. It really was. And I wish you had more time because I'm going to deviate this. I know you have a what we're talking about, but I'm going to deviate this for a second. On that list for the, the Southwest is another restaurant here in Vegas, which is actually one of my other favorites. And the next time you're in town, I want you to go. It's called Other Mama. And I consistently go there and I think they're great too. And again, where are they? In a strip mall, 20 minutes outside the strip. It's just, this is the new norm. It's not about having all these, you know, um, upscale dining experiences that take forever. You just go there. You're not going there because it's got great design, although it's, you know, it's kitschy and I like it, but that's not what they're there for. But again, they're just bringing something extra to the table when it comes to like food, their cocktail program, even the hospitality of the service there. It's, it's just taken on a whole different uh, wavelength in where we're going when it comes to restaurant and eating more so now that we're going through all of this. Michelle, talk for me about, the, before we get into each of these restaurants, and I'd like to do that with you, mm-hmm. let's talk about, I can't think of another city except for Los Angeles, where the strip malls are the home to some of the best eating in town. Jonathan Gold showed us all that Las Vegas, I mean, Los Angeles is rich with those 10 years ago, they would have been called Hole in the Wall or Mom and Pop. They would have been in Koreatown. They would have been a little, you know, 
joint that's specialized in a crispy skin duck or a specialty kind of taco. Uh, they can be found in any neighborhood and every neighborhood. Talk about how Las Vegas actually, like Los Angeles, has places that are world-class good in the most unlikely locations. How did that happen? Well, you have to think about the history of Las Vegas, and it's a relatively new city. We don't have these existing neighborhoods where, you know, we've cultivated, you know, these great, um, you know, like New York where, you know, immigrants came and that became this city or neighborhood and all these neighborhoods became known for this. If you wanted Italian food, you went to Little Italy. Correct. Um, Vegas was even as far back as 15, 20 years ago, Vegas was to strip. And when you got to Summerlin, it kind of stopped at a certain point. They were trying to make these neighborhoods to get people here, but really it was primarily centered on the strip. What did they build? They built strip malls. That's just how the architecture, if you will, of this city came about. That's just the nature of it. So where else were you going to put these restaurants? Right. You had no choice. Yeah, it's what you had. Right. It's not like you had manufacturing districts like they did in New York, where in the old days they were making dresses, but today they're making, you know, crepes. You even, um, not to get off of food, but you even think about that when it comes to churches. It's the most place that I've ever seen where all these churches are in strip malls. And I come from New England. And so there's, it's rich in history. And you've got cathedrals and these buildings have been around for so long. Again, you don't have that here. So you, in a sense, work with what you have. Right. And that's where the strip malls and the restaurants being there, they're just as good. It, you know, the architecture may not be what we're used to, but that's not what we're there for. We're there for what's inside. Hey, Michelle, I want to ask you and Michael both. Our, our mutual friend, Elizabeth Blau, is widely credited in the transformation, that, that innovative transformation of Las Vegas from a buffet town to a gourmet town. Do you think that that pivot point of becoming a gourmet town from a buffet town allowed the trajectory that took us from the strip to the strip mall to happen at such a high level? Because across the board, Vegas, when that happened, when Elizabeth and her environment shifted to that gourmet town that the whole game got elevated food wise across across the the region is that why today the strip malls are better there than almost any place else because i can tell you i'm not finding great cuisine james beard worthy cuisine in strip malls everywhere like it is there Okay, I'll go first. I first. Oh, were I you waiting for me, Michelle? I, I was. I know. Well, that was so polite. I'm, I'm in the middle of quarantine potty training, so I'm oh. up and down. Okay. No, not for myself, for my child, for the baby. I was hoping it wasn't for you, so I kind of assumed. Well, close, but I, I got <laughs> through that two years ago. Okay. Um, I, you know, you know how Jennifer, you know my opinion on Vegas, right? Um, and food, and the food in Vegas. I and, and Michelle, you can you can be be. I have no choice, but right. you can you can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, she will too. I know she will because she, <laughs> that's what they do. Um, the uh, I I think when Elizabeth came in and and 
Harry came in with Jean George and everybody was at Bellagio and Brant was there. And it was so awesome, right? It was just so spectacular and everything was really spectacular. I mean, there's no better word than spectacular. Magnificent, maybe, right? Um, then that went on and that, and, and before everything happened over at Wynn, um, all these other places started bringing in the celebrity chefs and all this silly stuff. And a lot of these guys are my buddies. But, you know, I do know at Caesars and MGM, most of the uh, product is made at the commissary. The, 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 I know a lot of the sauces are and a lot of the dressings are. And a lot. So are you really getting that meal? And that being said, it became a, a very strong money game with overpricing and overcharging a lot of people for a lot. I mean, you would get a steak for $140. You know, it was just crazy. So I made the, the effort. I My favorite steakhouse is the Palm, right, in Caesars Palace, because they're not affiliated with anybody else. Now, I've been to the old homestead. I've been to all these great places, and they're good. I also have word that after um, Steve sold Bellagio and did all that stuff, that Prime and one of my buddies told me they weren't even using prime meat anymore. He he actually had a restaurant upstairs from that called Fix. And he was the executive chef. Do I need to say his name? But he said that his beat was better than the meat down at John George's, which was horrible, right? Like, who wants to hear that? And I'm sure that Brian doesn't want me to tell everybody that. But that's what he told me. You know what I'm saying, Michelle? That's what he told me. So, um, so that being said, that's and I love to go off. I love the palm. I, Nora's. I love Nora's. I love Pizzeria Manzo. Have you been there yet? It's the old Nora's, and it's it's the son, Gio. And Michael, up. can I just interrupt and say, everything that you're talking about, all that uh, transitioning kinds of stuff, where things, um, we're, we're talking, that, that happened previously. That's not what was happening just before the pandemic. Well, no, but but all those restaurants, you know, all the, all the, uh, the famous celebrities, I'm not going to say any names, but we don't have to, just turn on the Food Network. Whoever has a TV show and has a restaurant in Vegas, I don't think, I mean, I think they're way overpriced. I don't know. I'm sorry. Mary Sue and Susan, uh, I think their food is as They're an exception. Ever. They're an exception. I believe they're, because they're, they're, they're sort of their own being, right? Um, they're over at Mandalay Bay. They're kind of not even in the beaten path. So, and those two, yeah, I, that's, um, what is that called? Border Grill. Yes. Right. And uh, I, I think that they are an exception. But when you start going in to places and 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 the, it wasn't about what we could serve the customer in Vegas. I'm, Vegas is Vegas. I've been told by the biggest guys at the biggest companies, if you can't write what I want you to write. You're not invited here, what, that kind of stuff. So I have no love. There's no loss of love for some of these places, right? And I think a lot of these dishes are created based on money. And, and maybe Michelle can help us define that, right? It's not value-oriented. It's what can we get and what what can we what's the most amount of money we can get? What can we do to get it? And that's how Vegas became. I don't disagree with you at all, um, Michael. I've been down there where I'm just like, these people are here purely for the name. The food integrity is not there. Um, I just think it's quite frankly a waste of money. That's why it's very rare for me to get down to this trip. I mean, I'm doing it more so because. I'm meeting a vendor or I'm entertaining someone and that's where they'd like to go. But when they came in, Jennifer, and it helped to bring an awareness to Vegas, all these celebrity chefs came in and I get that, but 
let's be realistic. This is not where they're spending their time. This is not their home. So they're here to put a name on a marquee. They're here to get, you know. See, uh, I'm going to disagree with you because anybody that I know that's there, like Hubert Keller, you can't tell me that isn't like extraordinary. There are a few, but the majority of them. Well, let's just be careful. I just want to be really clear that, that, um, that, that what we're talking about is not what we started talking about, which is why Las Vegas off the strip. Well, no, because I'm going to tell you why there, there is a path to this. And the path is Elizabeth brought these names. Okay. And we started to get the recognition. So it's like all these names. It was excellent when, when she did that. I mean, it was remarkable. And it was, but I think Vegas, um, and anyone can jump in anytime. We have gone through some metamorphosis. And so while it did start off great, at time it definitely went down a path where it became not so great. That being said, young yes. Were you well, I was gonna me? say, let's just to make Jennifer more comfortable, I think, Michelle. I think what we need to say is, oh, let's say let's use the words owner occupied, right? Okay. Hubert, Hubert Keller, owner occupied. The guy's mm-hmm. there all the time. Rick Moonen, owner occupied. Rick is there all the time. And at, at Encore, hold on, hold on. At Encore and Win, owner occupied. When yes. Paul Bartolotto and all these guys were there, and even Danielle, Danielle was there because that was the deal. And even Jimmy Sneed, my favorite, the frog. I mean, you, you, I still. Comachiones are one of the great. Fa- I I will go there. I would eat every meal of my life there if I could. Well, the Marchioni boys were there. So yeah. owner occupied, right? Okay, okay, go ahead, Michelle. I want her so, to feel comfortable in this conversation. Okay. No, that's well said. But Michelle, if people are listening and they don't know some of the architecture of the way certain deals and licensing and things might happen, you know, again, I, I can name as many great places. And again, John Joho, and there are just some legends that have really done extraordinary things. I just don't want to paint with such a big brush stroke that it's unclear that we know the difference between one and the other. We're not, it's not a monolith. What we're, what we're identifying, what you're rightly, and, and both of you are there, but, but what you're identifying is that economies brought pressure and transition at the same time there was an upward trajectory and then there were some compromises. And I, I think that's where you're laying that explanation foundation for me. Okay. I don't sense? think the, the word's not compromise. I don't think compromise. I think it's corporate. Corporate. I would say corporate. Yes. I think that's a better word. It definitely became more corporate. It went through that change. And I feel that people, more and more people started coming to moving to Vegas, rather. They wanted to work at all these restaurants. Now you're getting an influx of people. The economy's great. You know, the cost of living, everyone starts coming in. And at that point, I feel like people were like, there has to be something else. There's more. I can be a talent too. I may not have a big name behind me, but I have something to offer. And so little by little, everyone's like, well, I can't be on the strip. I don't have that kind of backing. So I'm going to start opening outside of the strip. And I think we then started to get that new wave in. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, the strip isn't everything. We don't need to go to the strip just to eat good food. Why can't we eat good food in our neighborhood that are, that we're starting to develop here in Vegas? 
So I think that's where that wave started to come in. And now you have all these talented guys that do want to work here in Vegas that doesn't necessarily have to be on the strip. So now you're getting this influx of all these restaurants that you're seeing in the strip malls, but they're just as good. And they're able to pay their rent because they offer value. Listen, that's one of the main things that I talk about in my new book, Food and Beverage Guide to the Success of Restaurants. Gee, Michael, what does the cover of that book look like? Oh, let me see if I can pull it up here on my brand page. Let me let me see. Oh, that would be that book right there. Oh, it's not showing up. What's going on? Where's my book? There it is. Right. But the key is value, value, value. Offer value, right? So many people come in and go, I want to be, you know, a guy on TV. I want to create. I want to sell steaks for $200. I want to do. Most of those steakhouses don't succeed, right? Unless the prices are right. And the food quality and the service. There's all these things. Now, we know, Michelle. We're getting great service on the strip. Yes. Right? We're getting great service. And if we're not getting great service, you tell someone and immediately you will get great service. Absolutely. Okay. That is the one thing. So so sometimes you're paying for that great service, right? And people don't mind that. You can spend 20, 30 bucks on a cocktail because you're getting great service. Right? I mean, hopefully. Yeah. You know, hopefully. Um, but if they walk out feeling, wow, I really I feel like I didn't spend too much on this and I got a great value for it, they're gonna come back and be happy. I think with the mental attitude of Vegas is, hey, they're here. Let's get them while they're here. Then they go home. We're not looking for them every week. Do you, um, I also want to say that there are places like, you know, well, I'll, I'll use our friend, Honey Salt is one of those places that you want to go outside the strip to explore. Esther's Kitchen, uh, Other Mama. These are places that if you're going to Las Vegas, you are missing out if you don't visit them because they are world-class good. They just don't happen to be in what we always thought of as Las Vegas. Well, that's what Elizabeth did with Carrie and Simon's, right? Yeah. It was a, at the Hard Rock. It was the, it was the most, are you, you know, everyone talks about the old, sorry. Everyone talks about the old days and this, that. You can't even describe what that was. I, I have trouble describing, and I was there every day, describing what that was as a restaurant, right? It was like a. It was like that's where you went. It was your family. People would come in, and you it would know everybody in there. You would, you would feel like you got great value. I would of course get the best value because I was never given a check. I'm not going to lie. It's perks of the best friendship, right, right. Jen? Um, but but people would come in. They would come to Vegas just to go to Simon's. Then they moved off the strip, right, and get a little further off the strip into the Palms. Yep. And it was the same thing. The Sunday brunches and Elizabeth yeah. and yeah. Carrie really put down the honey salt. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think I have to change a diaper. I'll be right back. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> well, so, so Michelle, I'm going to flip it over to you and say, let's okay. talk about Esther's Kitchen. I know you've had a chance because you worked all over the country. You are a consulting chef. And, and one of the things that you, you know is you know sort of what's going on around the country. And with this year's James Beard nominations that were announced yesterday, they've painted a picture of a cuisine culture that exists in this moment in time. And in particular, the restaurants in Las Vegas that got a nod. What did this year's James Beard nominations say about the food culture we're living in at the moment? And I'm, and I'm sort of removing the pandemic from the equation mm-hmm. because this is kind of a, an award for what happened just before. What do these award nominations say about who we are as a cuisine culture? And in particular, what do these awards say about what Las Vegas is as a cuisine culture? I think without, you know, 
making it seem like redundant. Um, we are really embracing the, you know, what is the freshest? And I hate to, you know, farm to table movement, but everybody wants what's fresh. What can we do? It's not, um, there's not like a program to it. There's this, you're not getting like a four course or three course tasting. You're getting what is the freshest, what is the most creative that they can make with, you know, what's available to them. And so I don't, this isn't about how much money can you drop on a dinner? Everybody it's, we've, are so social these days, whether it's through the gram, uh, whether you're doing Twitter, whatever social media um, is out there, people want to be together and not withstanding this pandemic. Um, it's just about getting together to eat good food, have good drinks, and again, have a great value for it. Everybody just wants to be out and together. And if you're going to do that, especially now, we're definitely a culture that we just go out all the time. It's no longer, oh, it's just a special occasion. Now we just go out just for the sake of going out. Um, well, you know what, Michelle, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because my uh, our friend Maureen Marr, who's one of the event queens on the island of Nantucket, who I know, and you spend a lot of time as a consulting chef on the island of Nantucket as well. That's the, one of the things that you have in common. Um, can you see the comment that she's sharing with us about... In some cases, yes, because everybody wants, you know, a picture for the gram. So, yes, do you want to be there? But at the same time, we have become more savvy in the food culture. So we're not, you can't just pull one over on us. You can't just say, oh, this is what's in. You must eat this because it's good. I think we're definitely way more versed in food and beverage than we've ever been. So I think you got to, you have to give credit to people when it comes to culinary and food and what's in and what's not. So while, yes, people do want to be in places where they're seen and there's photographs and you can um, upload them or what have you, I also think you need to put, uh, you have to have a talent to right. be able to get the person back. Michelle, talk for me about the word conviviality. We all go out because the environment that's created at that buzzy place doesn't feel like any other place. I mean, the reason we go, when we were at Esther's Kitchen, it was it was ultra buzzy, but yes. not overwhelmingly so. It was the energy of of watching the Tony Award winning cast of a Broadway play, or watching an all star or championship team playing at the top of their game. It was the excitement and the energy of being in the room with somebody who's really doing the best you've ever seen. And yet, I want to have you talk about that idea of when we say you want to be seen, is it that you want to be seen in that place that has that for the sake of being seen? Or can you really feel that difference? Bringing me to Esther's kitchen, I felt the difference. I think you can absolutely feel a difference. You can tell when like the food's not that great. There has to be a culmination of all of this. There has to be this great hospitality. The people that are working there, I love, and just because I work the line, I love seeing the guys on the line. Um, they're doing it. There's like an orchestrated move to that. You can see that buzz. They're putting out the food, good food, you know, the bartenders and the patrons. I don't think you can just go to a place and say, you, I'm going to be seen there because again, that might be great for that one timer that's never been there before and can take their picture. But how do you keep the person coming back? And if it's contrived, 
I don't think the people keep coming back. It's almost, you can almost not be able to describe it, Jennifer, because there's so many factors that have to be working together to create that buzz that you're like, yes, that's why you keep going back over and over and over. But if it's, what's yeah. the name of the place that you worked summers in um, on Nantucket? Oh, uh, Crew Oyster um, House. And, or what Oyster are, Crew. And, and what are some of the things that you do there that you can say are comparable to the kinds of things that you're seeing done at Esther's Kitchen? What do you try to achieve to be uh, in place? Okay, so it's hard. You, there's, It's not really apples to apples because um, Nantucket is such a special little island, number one. And those are the, almost like the same people that keep going over and over. Whereas Vegas is a little different. It's more transient. Um, there are people here visiting from all over the world. Um, and it might be a one-time thing right. and then they're gone. So they have to hit it and, and hopefully hit it well. And then they're done. But Nantucket, um, people get used to seeing the same faces over and over. And there's so many little different uh, nuances that we do. Like we have the fresh raw bar. Um, the cocktail program is always changing. The three owners, the chef owner, Aaron Zercher, plus the two other owners, uh, Jane and Carlos, like these guys are always changing things up, but the faces are always the same. Um, where we're located at the end of the pier, granted, you know, the yachts are coming in, the ferry, everyone sees us. So there, it's run a little bit differently just because of the location and their history and who they are on that island. The excellent bar is equally high. Oh, absolutely. They, we're only looking like fresh fish. How can we change the menu? You know, what did we get? Because again, sometimes we are, um, we have to deal with what we can get on an island. So if something doesn't come over, you have to be, quick on your feet. You have to be uh, smart about what you're going to change and how you can change it and get it out there for the day. And it could change the very next day just based on delivery. But Michelle, what's so funny is everything we had the night that we dined at Esther's Kitchen nominee for the James Beard Foundation Awards 2020. I think that everything that was on that plate was house made, which means yeah. there was no specialty ingredients. There was no. nothing rare and unusual. It wasn't caviar. It was literally Roman trattoria style, Italian soul food that was a, a function of care, time, raw materials, and talent. And that real connoisseurship that they're applying that, that made me realize they did this on purpose. And they were aiming at irresistible, and they didn't stop until they achieved it. And they sat down in front of us a platter with five different toppings for the bread that accompanied the dish that was served to us. And I literally have a very difficult time telling you which thing was more delicious than the next because everything was more delicious than the next. I couldn't pick a favorite because they were all on any other day at any other restaurant. It would have been the best thing I'd eaten all year. But here's what was five examples of the best thing I ate all year. But And to add to that, I don't know if you remember this, but at one point the chef came out and spoke to us. And granted, there is talent behind that, but he was so happy about this dish. The fact that he was presenting it, what they were making, he was excited to talk about it. That excitement passed on to us. It's just, there's a whole culmination of things. And when food is good, 
the person that, you know, who's presenting it has this enthusiasm about their food. Granted, he was good. Um, so there is that. It was it, excellent. It just brought everything together and it made you just want to be there and go again and keep coming back. There was an energy mm -hmm. in the generosity and the excitement that they brought to the table with that platter of, of it was a tasting plate, basically. Yeah. And it was, if, it was as if they put down a greatest hits album of flavor in front of us and said, I want you to try this because I think you're really going to like it. Knowing the reaction they were going to elicit from us. And they watched with great eagerness to make sure that we were as delighted as they knew we could be by it. That was the gift they gave us. To me, that's the factor. It's not what they did to the bread or to the toppings. It was, it was that extra intention that made everything they touched taste that much better than it could have been. It's, it's one of those um, difficult to put your finger on because you can't replicate it. It's like saying, here, you want to be the champions this year? Go beat, go beat the Patriots. <laughs> or or go beat the Yankees. Yes. Uh, go beat that team. Well, you think you know how to do it, but then you're on the field and you just can't do it the same way. You can't go into a kitchen and say, do it just like they do at Esther's kitchen. Oh, yeah, you, that's impossible. You put all the same things out on the table. It's just but, but you know what? I'm thinking, Jennifer, of restaurants that I've been in Vegas, in hotels, where the chef comes out and, and does that, and David Walzog is like, Michelle, David is like that. Do you agree? Uh yeah. Or he has been with me, at least. I don't know if he is. But, but we're from Maryland. We're both from Maryland. So he would always come out. And, and you know, I don't see that a lot, right, off on the strip. Because they no, actually don't have time. They've got hundreds of – they've got to make – it's almost – they've got to make so much – so many covers and so much food. It's like a banquet every night for these guys. They're just in the weeds every night because they're so – in the I do, but and that's why I love these off the strip, Jennifer. Not to cut you off, because you go in there and they're small enough that they do want to talk with you. They they want to take the time to hear your thoughts. They want to talk about their food. So again, it's their enthusiasm rubs off on you. So now you do want to try everything. Okay. Oh well, now that you've talked that up, let me see what else you have, and I have to come back. So I think that's one of the great things about all these smaller places off the strip that, you know, we as locals are now, you know, going to more often. And I feel, I hope that people who come here have that opportunity as opposed to just staying put in one location and that they have the, the chance to experience Vegas and, you know, come out of their comfort box a little bit of why they come here. Well, Chinatown, Chinatown, sorry, Michelle, yeah. I forgot. Uh, but previously, fine dining meant fancy, multi-course, super expensive. What does this moment in time in a place like Esther's Kitchen say about what and how we define fine dining today? That Las Vegas and everywhere. I don't think they do. I don't think they could think about it as fine dining. They think about it as serving their customers where we would come from a certain place of what, okay, so we're casual, we're this, we're that. They're not trying to put silverware on the, you know, they're not trying to be white table. They're just trying to get the best product out from what I understand as possible. This is the same with um, herbs and rye, Nick Talley, Michelle. Oh, yeah. he's, he's a wonderful human being. I mean, I love this guy. Um, 
and he does what he can. And he does. And I opened another place. I still haven't been, but it seems mm-hmm. like it was a fun place. And we'll see what happens. But as this pandemic closes in and people try to reopen, Michelle, mm-hmm. what do you see happening? That's going to be a hard one. Um, I am hoping that people are still able to get their places open. I think you are going to possibly have to think outside the box. Um, for example, even um, we weren't really doing it before, but it has forced our hand. You see the restaurants all doing their volume of takeout. Maybe it's more subscription type basis where, you know, families are ordering dinners for three nights in a row and they're picking it up from you. But you have to be nimble. You have to be able to like, you know, weave and dodge and come up with another way to service the guests if they aren't allowed, not to the full capacity, if they're not allowed back. But as long as you're able to uh, be flexible in that manner, um, I feel there's a way to still come back to where we were, number one. Two, um, it, it gives you another chance to be creative. Now you can just be creative on a whole different level. Um, but I'm really hoping that everyone, you know, all these small places are going to come back because that is the heart of our community here. Um, everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. And, I, and, and my thought is this, that being in, the, I mean, I've owned a bunch of restaurants and I've seen over 20 years of food and beverage magazine. I've seen a lot of successes and a lot of more failures, obviously, right? Yeah. Failures from big people with other people's money, right? Yeah. That's what happened. And I'm mostly concerned that they were sort of gleaming the cube, these restaurants. They were kind of just getting by. The owners maybe weren't taking a paycheck for a while before the pandemic, keeping it in business, keeping it in business. What's going to happen next? What a, an icon in Vegas, Ricardo's is closing. Ricardo's, mm-hmm. 40 years, Bobby and Sarah, one of my close friend mentors. He was at the MGM. Then he, he was before that on, on, on the east side. Then he went to the MGM and then he went to the west side. Um, and after this, he's like, I'm closing because he doesn't, he's 70 years old, I think, right now. And he doesn't, I guess he doesn't want to put, the, his life savings back into trying to rebuild a business because it's, you know, he doesn't need to. Um, but it's still sad. You know, he's going to be fine. There's 60 employees or something. Um, it's a, it's definitely an iconic spot in Vegas, you know. Um, what a shame. But I think we're going to see a lot more of that all over the country. All over the oh, country. Oh, absolutely. You know, the goal of like, I'm going to sell my establishment and retire may not work anymore. Like, I'm going to tell you something. You know what the note of hope is? through this experience you look at a restaurant like Esther's Kitchen getting nominated yesterday for the James Beard Foundation Awards as the best restaurant in its region and it doesn't look like any place you ever went before and it's the kind of place where you could rightly say we don't eat like this anymore referring to those fine dining white table cloths we don't. We don't eat like that, and and we don't eat those ten course tasting men. Nobody eats like that anymore. Well, uh, when I have my servants making breakfast, let me finish though, because because we went through the transition of that's what fine dining was to today. We don't eat like that anymore. We also can remember with hope that because we could transition from fine dining to we don't eat like that anymore. We can go from where we were pre-pandemic to where we're going next and say, we don't eat 
and operate and serve like that anymore and know that whatever it's going to take to make us sustain and survive, we can do it because we've done it before. We went from, I don't eat like that anymore to how we used to be eating to from that to the next. We can and will survive in whatever it looks like, however it morphs and whatever it becomes, because we've already had that. We took that hard leap from Escoffier fine dining white tablecloth to where we're going next. And we know we can do it. There's always a new normal. So this will just now be our new normal. So absolutely. I think, you know, I really keep my fingers crossed that all the the ones, you know, our favorites that they reopen. But then yeah, I do worry about some of these other ones who maybe they just started and that was their life dream. I'm hoping that they can pick up and, you know, come back again. It's not going to be easy. We already know that. Um, but they've got to be as good as Esther's kitchen. They've set a really high bar. That's they what have to be to survive. There's other good ones out there that just yeah. don't get They don't, I don't know the process for the beard, for the beard awards. But I'm sure you have to submit. I'm sure it's a submittal process. Um, there's a lot of good places out there. I, I mean, I can go across the country, and you would I would blow your mind with some of the flavors. I mean, one of the, the greatest pizzas in the world is this place called Lido's in College Park, Maryland. I don't want to say this, but it was Oprah's favorite as well, Michelle, so it must be good. <laughs> must be um, good. <laughs> must be good. Um, you know, little places like that. There's Italian restaurants all over the country that I, little, I have one. But then you've got Galleria Umberto on Hanover Street making Sicilian pies, serving and opening from 11 in the morning until 2 or whenever they sell out. And they were the American Regional Classic at the James Beard Awards last year or the year before. Really? Chris Bianco is is a nominee for Pizzeria Bianco as an outstanding restaurant. I mean, this is the reality. We are beginning to respect and appreciate what has that it takes as much genius to make the perfect pizza be irresistible as anything. Hey, Michelle. Yes. Is it a mark? Is it marketing? Is it, is, is this, is the success, not a success is the comeback towards success all bottled up in the marketing of their concepts right now and their creativity. Or do they just open their door and say, Hey, thanks. Come on in. Try my French fries. So, uh, no, I think, this is, first of all, in this day and age, in this time, you need that social media, you need that marketing. So whether you subscribe to it or not, it is absolutely crucial because you now need to get your name out there even more so than before. You can't just open your doors and, well, I'm known for uh, my great mozzarella and it's just going to happen. You absolutely need someone behind you making that your name known to everyone. But Irresistible food. I'm sorry. It has to be irresistible food. It's got to be it, excellent. It does, but sometimes people have irresistible food that nobody knows about. So you need someone behind you getting your name out there in whatever shape, way, or form. Um, I don't care if you're doing cooking videos on Instagram Live. You need something to let people know that you're there. I love it. I mean, making cookies on every Saturday or Sunday, these chocolate, dark chocolate peanut butter cookies that I see my friends making in her kitchen. I mean, I am just flabbergasted. <laughs> flabbergasted. This is an inside joke, everybody. And I'm flabbergasted. I didn't even know she could cook. I'm coming head over there this weekend. <laughs> I'll bring my mask. 
Don't worry. You'll need to. You need to come over. Okay. Michelle, please. Thank you so much for coming and being with us. Thank yes, you, thank so you much Michelle. We want you. We want you back, Michelle, because we've, you've had a lot of insight. And unlike Jennifer, you're not afraid to speak your mind. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not afraid to speak my mind. It's just I think it's really important to be super precise because not everybody has that experience yeah. of history. And and I just don't no, want anyone to understand what we're saying because I'm I'm the outsider here saying and I don't think I don't think everybody gets painted with the same brushstroke. That's all I was trying to say. I think some of the most fun, rest, successful, fun places are you can find sometimes in food courts. You know, I could give you restaurants that are in food courts that have lines every single day. And they're like staples. People go there every single day. And it's are pretty they, amazing. So it doesn't. Who makes the best sandwich in Las Vegas? Ooh. Who, 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 Michelle? I'll, yeah, I'm going to have to defer to you because you guys are going to hate me. I don't really eat a lot of sandwich. I don't either, but I don't know that there is a great sandwich in Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, I like, there's no place I would say like you've got to eat there to go get X sandwich. Really? What about pizza, Michelle? I could say right now the best pizza in Vegas, I can tell you hands down, and you will agree when you have it. Pizzeria Manzu. And that's Gio from the Norris family. It's the mm -hmm. old Norris case right on uh, Flamingo. It is hands down the best pizza in Las Vegas. Okay. Period. Period. It is it's a sourdough crust. It's unbelievable. It's oh, actually um, our mutual friend has been working with sourdough. She might be making a sourdough pizza on Saturday. This weekend? Oh my god, I'm gonna watch it. I'll be Graham. <laughs> how did anybody get yeast? It's sold out across the country. No, have, no, she actually I'm not mentioning any names, but she's got a good friend who has a 20-year-old starter and gave her some. And so we've been experimenting with the sourdough. I may have to say I'm doing a family tree of this yeast starter and your name just popped up on my family tree. <laughs> that would boggle her mind, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that boggle her I'm not even going to do it. You should see the pictures. She finds these obscure pictures of me from like the openings of the upper restaurants and stuff. And it says to me, and I'm like, why? I'm so, why was I wearing that? What are you doing? I had this crazy hat on. I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, here's how she sends it. Here's a classic. <laughs> it's right up my home. Hey, listen, you guys. I, I wanted to before we before we uh, sign off today. Uh, when we talk about Las Vegas and its transformation, and the relationship with the James Beard Foundation and the chefs that have won the James Beard Prize that have an outpost in Las Vegas, there's there's clearly some excellence at the very highest level taking place for people who are coming to Las Vegas. And I know we've talked about life off the strip and the James Beard Awards are now striking the, the, the spotlight on those places off the strip that are operating at that really excellent level. Will you leave us with the thought of, of what excellence looks like and tastes like today in Las Vegas? That's a very good question. Um, uh, well, yeah. Um, I think that looks like you've got uh, one hell of a team because I don't think it can only be one person that can make that happen. And you really need that strong team behind you to to put that forth. Right. So I think when you have that, um, there's no stopping you. You can do 
anything, really. You know, you know who never got it wrong? How about who? this? You know, you know who never got it wrong? Piero Salvaggio. Right. Piero mm-hmm. Salvaggio at, at Valentino Restaurant inside mm-hmm. of the Venetian never got it wrong. And he's in Santa Monica, right? I think, right, Jennifer? He's a restaurant in Santa Monica. And uh, his chef was amazing. James Beard winner, right? And uh, I think he never, and by you saying that, it made me remember everything you ate. And I would go there with Robin Leach all the time before Robin became old curmudgeonly. Um, every time we would have the- Famous, and, and I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for Robin Leach. That's true. You wouldn't know me if it wasn't for Robin Leach. Um, but we would go to Piero's and we would, there would be not one piece of, one horse, one piece of bread, one veg, nothing was bad. It was consistent across the board. And that's, and, and that's amazing. But that's how it is at Honey Salt too. I mean, that's, that's the one thing I'll say is great places get everything right. I mean, that's what makes them great. Well, that's because you have a great team and a great team leader. So, And Jason Lapin is a great team leader. Yes, he is. I love Jason. All right, boys and girls, thank you so much for joining us. After another meeting. So I appreciate you guys having me on. And hopefully we can do this again. Thank you, Michelle. Of course. She was wonderful. I'm telling you, she's hugely talented. She's both a savory and pastry chef. Her mm-hmm. eye is unerring. Uh, her palate is remarkable. And if I had a place, uh, she'd be my first round draft pick. I think she's excellent. If I wanted a friend, I would call her. She's that too. She seems like a nice lady. Anyway, congratulations to everybody in Las Vegas and all the James Beard Award nominees that were announced yesterday. We're actually going to be talking to the James Beard Foundation on Friday. Tomorrow on tomorrow's live, we have got. Well, I'm gonna we're we're gonna sort of revisit Cinco. De, we didn't even talk about Cinco de Mayo today. I wasn't we didn't in the mood. About the World Margarita Championships today, but we've got some delicious things on tap for tomorrow, so you're not gonna want to miss it. Very exciting, and thank you. We are now signing off, and we'll see you tomorrow, Jennifer. And thanks, thanks for everybody uh, tuning in and sharing your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, don't forget, you can always get in touch with us. Michael, give us the website and the email address. I don't even have one. Yes, we do. What do you mean? Food and Beverage Magazine? FBmagazine.com. You can find us there and you can find just, or yeah, michael.politz at fbmagazine.com. And I'm spiritskitchen at gmail.com. And when you get home tonight, do me a favor. Oh, wait, you're already home because we're quarantining in place. But go home and hug your kids and count your blessings. I'd also like them to go onto Amazon and purchase that book so we can have a lot of sales on July 1st when it comes out. What do you think? <laughs> Pre-sale. Pre-sale. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye.